0: Hey, I want to tell you about the SeatGeek app. It's the best way for fans to save money on sports and concert tickets, and it's 100% free service. SeatGeek aggregates tickets from every major ticket site online and puts them all in one place to make comparison shopping really easy. It's basically like Kayak.com for concerts, festivals, and sporting events. When you're ready to buy your tickets, you can snag a great deal right from your phone. You can just do two taps on your app. There's really no better way to find great tickets this summer. SeatGeek also has a technology called Deal Score that calculates what every ticket in the building is worth and whether the price you may pay for that ticket is a good deal or a bad deal. No other ticketing app has features like this. This week only, use promo code HOLLYWOOD in the SeatGeek app and get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. It'll take less than a minute to download. To redeem your promo code and save $20 on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code HOLLYWOOD in the app. SeatGeek will then send you $20 once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code HOLLYWOOD today. The SeatGeek app is your ticket to summer sports and concerts.
1: And now... Hollywood Prospectus.
0: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Hold your applause. Yeah. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Prospectus Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I am a writer for Grantland.com, and on the other line, he's definitely
1: started on the road three times. It's Andy Greenwald! Hey buddy, what's up, man? I love, you know, since we do these video pods now, we really have insight into each other's lives, our daily setups, and, yeah. like, you're, you're, you're dressing like you're in the Night's Watch these days. It's cold <laughs> this, out there, huh?
0: This little thing?
1: Just the watchers on the wall. <laughs>
0: yeah, man. I have a vow. You can't tempt me.
1: <laughs> well, that's also the case of Jon Snow, of Game of Thrones this week. We're going to yeah. talk about that. We're going to talk about... We're going to talk about... I don't, maybe it's Madman. I don't know how it's pronounced. It could be Madman. Madman. The, the uh, Madman. We're, we're going to talk about some movies. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to talk about... The Age of Ultron. Sorry, guys. Pacquiao the Mayweather. rest of
0: America. <laughs> yeah. The rest of America saw it, but you you sat this one out. I uh I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Sorry. I have a lot. Of, I have a lot on my plate. Very I understand. Full, it's like going to a buffet at Morongo Casino. You just loaded up with fresh fruits and grains.
1: I'm kind of I'm kind of into the fact that you have seen literally every movie released in the last three years. I actually saw this movie, <laughs> which is the most popular movie on planet Earth, and you were like. hmm. Pass.
0: Yeah, Pass. No, I was I was busy. Uh, I, was, I was just re- getting getting reacquainted with the beatniks this weekend.
1: That sounds nice. Yeah, uh, well, I think I think it's actually good for us. We will hit Avengers after everyone's done talking about it. And let's let's go back. Let's st- stick with TV. That's what we're good at.
0: Yeah, seriously. Let's no, go with what we know. Let's talk a little bit about um, Game of Thrones. You loved this episode.
1: I love this episode. Yeah. I thought this was one of the best episodes they've ever done. Did do you you didn't love this episode? I,
0: I thought it was great. I I didn't like it especially more than last week's or the, the previous right. one. Uh, but I actually thought this week visually it was very compelling. I thought Mark yeah. Mylod, who directed it, did some really cool stuff. There's like some handheld stuff on the shoreline uh, yes. when um, Tyrion gets captured. I, I really liked a lot of the. Uh, there, there was just some really good,
1: really good visuals. We, he, He did some stuff like um, during the two big set pieces, one of which was the sort of the the rise of the faith militant. Yes. And then also at the end when the Sons of the Harpy sort of go ham in the streets. Those are both enormous events that I would imagine in a larger narrative would take up pages and pages of text to set up. He introduced them. And had them play out both these, th- both these things in very, very economical fashion. And he did that with those cross-cutting, you know, that, those quick cuts as if something is massing, as if something's coming. And yeah, he, he did, the did a great
0: job of that. And, and I think that you were we were able to feel the importance of the events without them being, uh, like you said, without them taking up half the episode.
1: And, and here's, the, here's, here's my big macro point. There's a bunch of stuff to talk about on a micro level. But here's the big macro thing about this episode, um, why I liked it. I... Think that this this season so far has been the smoothest narratively of yes. any of them. Yeah. I think it's just been compelling on a very human level. The stories have flowed. There haven't felt like there have been big data dumps in the middle of a scene. It hasn't felt like a there's just someone like pushing on the wheel just to get the whole ship turning. It feels like everything's moving in the direction it needs to be. There's no brand brand storyline yeah. to drag it down. And you know this week really focused on. And I, I understand when people are. People's favorite episodes of the show tend to be like, oh, well, The Red Wedding or mm-hmm. Blackwater when the big stuff happens. Nothing particularly big happened unless you really cared about the sanctity of Cousin Lancel's forehead flesh. <laughs> but this ep- but this episode um, was really focused on the kind of the ordinary things that help put everything in perspective, which is something that I really, really appreciated. And yet I'm still seeing people saying that this season has been boring so far, which uh, I feel like maybe we're watching – TV for different reasons i guess because i i
0: I think that once you have a blackwater and a red wedding and a couple of things like that people start to get very anxious about getting one of those things or even being able to see one of those things coming like a certain collision of characters or events that's going to take place whether it's Stannis going to winterfell or whatever people are imagining they probably are a little bit more anxious for that i want to echo the point you just made which was that even when they do have to do exposition i find that um they're this is just reps they're getting but like when Sansa talks to Littlefinger in the, the tombs, and yes. he's like, Here's the story of, of of uh Liana or what was that her name?
1: Yeah, Liana Starker. Yeah. And, and it's, it's like,
0: here's this story, which I think we've heard before, which I think if anybody yeah. has sort of like done some light wikiing, they will have learned. But that was a great way of telling that story and like the parallels of all the women in this family that you can draw of like women who have been cast aside, murdered, you know, fought wars fought over, war's begun over, whatever.
1: Yeah, I want to – let's put a small pin in that because I I did want to say there was one scene this week that really stood out and uh, in, in not necessarily in a positive way, but it actually made the rest of the episode look really good. And that was the introduction of the Sand Snakes. Oh, yeah. Who are, who are Oberyn's uh, feisty daughters. Yes. Um, that didn't work for me. Like, I get that that was cool, but that was a scene that was like Age of Ultron style where it's like, you know, did – you know did somebody call for a man in a metal suit it's like a big hey this is who we are this is what we do this is exposition I'm going to throw a javelin through a man's skull in the sand and it was interesting because everything else these are characters (laughs) who we've been like we've lived with them everything is sunken in you know and we're used to them and we can see Jon Snow doing paperwork and we're like hmm fascinating yeah whereas these seem like (laughs) purely fan servicey characters and they're like we are here for revenge my sisters and that seemed super genre in a way that the show seems to have shrugged off for the most part
0: that there's there's two stories told now here's here's my macro point about this episode actually okay
1: and then, then we should come back to the crip stuff because yeah. i think that's another thing if you were
0: you're a about. character on game of thrones do yourself mm. a really a life-saving favor and mm. don't tell any anecdotes the first time <laughs> you, you, that yes. Danny's weed carrier gets more than a yes your your, your, your your majesty he tells this story about her brother being a minstrel and it's yeah, all no, sunshine. A, a, a
1: street, a street busker.
0: And then the homie from Treme comes in and is like, "Don't worry, I got this. Feel free to have your afternoon constitutional of this beautiful city. <laughs> yeah, just go wandering. There's, there's I no know. tension on the streets. Like, take it in.
1: He's, he's basically like, did you ever know your brother who died before you were born was the inspiration for the movie Once? Yeah, he's, he's, it is. Such a silly story, and it's so over the top, and I'm like, well, he's dead. There's just no way he's not dead. And speaking
0: of storytelling on this show, just once, I'd like if a character launched into an anecdote that didn't A, result in their brutal death, or B, wasn't, like, a very, very long way of saying, yes, me too. Like, when the third (laughs) Sand Snake is like... When I was a girl and I was like, Oh, for Christ's <laughs> sakes, just say yes, you're into I it know. Like, <laughs> I know. That's
1: that's that's really the trouble. And even my favorite scene in the episode fell prey to that, if we're really gonna go go granular on this, because you know, Shireen walks in and she's like, Daddy, are you embarrassed by me? And he's like <laughs> <laughs> when i was a student at rada yeah. that's the british shakespearean you see, this like,
0: doll this doll cost more than your car
1: <laughs> but it's just like there's a, there's a way where you could say yes and yeah you, know? you yeah, don't yeah. have to say like okay there's an answer but i'm gonna start over here in essos well with this my, is about uh, they've
0: got so many different uh pots on the stove they've got to like yeah. tend to so many different gardens there's, choose your metaphor but they don't have time to have The back and forth between Stannis and his daughter that might feel a little bit more naturalistic. So she asks a question and he has got a pitch perfect Stephen Delane, like banging him like Dave Winfield out of the park, just goes up and knocks it out. Stephen Delane has definitely taken over stoic British man, uh, like championship belt from uh, Charles Dance, don't you think? Well, you were pretty into Roose
1: Bolton last week in terms was, of stoic I British was, I was. It's hard
0: to separate. Yeah, it's true. You just,
1: I mean, that's just <laughs> as a longtime fan of Stoic British men, Chris. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is show is like a bounty for you. Um, there's another way to look at the Stannis scene, also, which is some very, very, very smart character rehabilitation work. Yes, um, Stannis clearly is important and has been around for quite some time. Uh, I've never quite understood why we are meant to care. It's actually much – it's been much easier to pay attention to what's around him. Like Davos, one of my favorite characters. Uh, Melisandre, who seems to be doing pretty awful things on the regular and is affiliated with him. Yes. So he's hard to root for. But yet uh, Jason, our maester, loves Stannis. And I feel like Stannis' stands are a, definitely a book thing because he must be a much more compelling figure. And so it was very smart to give him this scene where he is maybe the first good father in the history of the show.
0: Ah, Ned a pretty good c- father.
1: Yeah, but look where that got him. I'm just saying, Stannis <laughs> seems to know how to, how to like, you know, free-range parent and get stuff done. Here's my thing but with Stannis, is that he yeah. will straight up
0: chop his best friend's fingers off. He will. He will throw a dude in a fire while that dude is still alive. He will. He can't just have a sidebar convo with his wife and be like, maybe maybe lay off on the insults on our iguana-faced kid. <laughs> like, what's up with that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's true. It's true. He he doesn't seem to be able to uh, see what's happening right around him. He really takes the long view in terms yeah. of just the enemy murder. Um, let's talk about the other point that you brought up. So here's here's another thing about why I think the show has been good this year, and it's been interesting to watch the, the, the relationship between book readers and show watchers sort of diverge. It's impossible to exist with the show on the Internet and not at least, as you said, not at least have an inkling of what – everyone was hubbubbing about in terms yeah. of the Littlefinger Sansa scene. And we're not going to get into it specifically because I don't think it matters that much. It's just that there is some debate over the role of Rhaegar Targaryen and the importance of him mm-hmm. long term in the show. He, he's dead, but what he was yeah, up to. his heart goes what on. What was alluded to. <laughs> his heart still goes on. Um, I've gotten a, I mentioned that in my recap, and a lot of people have been like, you missed the most important thing in the episode. But here's the thing. That's not the most important thing in the episode, and that's why Game of Thrones is a good TV show and not just a faithful adaptation. Because we care about the characters as we see them now, and what that scene may, have, may intimate about the future, about bloodlines, about who characters really are, mm-hmm. that's for another day. And I don't know what day it's for because the stuff that Littlefinger was talking about— What went on, you know, before King Robert Baratheon took the throne, before all of this got started, is so in-depth. Yeah. It's so, so, so in-depth that, you know, there there was the Mad King who was Rhaegar and Daenerys' father, and Rhaegar was married to a Martell, but he was in love with a Stark. But he passed up her for, yeah. And he he sang a lot, apparently, in the street, which was important to know.
0: just do, like, one-off small club gigs, intimate audiences, (laughs) just, you know, every once in a while just show up and work on some new stuff.
1: For the real heads of the HB podcast, I think the best comparison for Rhaegar Targaryen's (laughs) professional career is really uh, Penn Badgley on the slap. Yeah. Whereas he's like an actor and has a day job, but at night he goes down to, um, you know, just clubs and Gowanus, and he just sort of vibes. Yeah. You know what I mean? With kind of like like dubstep trios, he vibes. But do do you see what I'm saying here? Is that, like, there's a reason that these works are, I think, from what I understand, complementary. Yeah, Like, if you want the full scope of this ridiculously detailed and impressively detailed history, that's what the books are for. This story is about this right now, and I think they're doing a very good job of not making it feel like this weight we're dragging behind us. I
0: think this season feels the most distinctively Benioff and Weiss. That's might be, and that's, that could be shorthand for it feels the least like the previous seasons. It feels yeah. the least like a George R. R. Martin book. It feels the least I, it feels very. Um, I, I can't think of another word for it, but eloquent. It, it, the, yeah. the ideas that they're talking about, the way the characters are speaking. A lot of the children have grown up, so their vocabularies are more. Uh, That's right. Are richer and their ideas are richer, and they have they have adult ideas and they have adult concerns. And yes. you know, Sansa's talking about how she's not. I mean, Sansa and and Littlefinger were basically talking about how whether or not she's going to be able to seduce Ramsay. You know, like and yeah, and make him do what she wants. And that's not something are, that was there, happening three seasons ago
1: and how there are two ways this could play out. And either way, she could probably get what she wants. Just yes. One is and a he's like and he
0: is this. He is the father figure and lover, weirdly, you know, of of this girl who he is basically trying to recreate in the image of the woman that he loved forever. I and mean, it's a very
1: complicated relationship. Yeah. And let's also, let's bring it back to Age of Ultron again, because I know it was a big look for you this weekend. But, <laughs> sure. um No, but what I mean is the the beauty of a, of a TV show in this case, having lived with these characters and grown with them for over five years, is that the stories can get deeper. Yeah. The thing that happens with sequels is that inevitably the worlds get bigger, the threats get bigger, and new characters are shoehorned in. Mm-hmm. And they don't, don't always fit, and it's not always a natural – it doesn't always flow naturally. And so I think that's why the Sand Snakes thing didn't really – Fit to me because yes, the world's gotten bigger. We're now we're now in Dorne. That's part of the opening credits now, so it's official. But at the same time, there aren't. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there haven't been that many new characters brought in. I yeah, mean, and Sparrow this is, is and there, they, and
0: they paid new character tax. Like you get new characters and. Yeah. Hold on. Sorry, drop the box here. Uh, hey, hold you, it together. You're all right. They paid new character tax, so they had to we had to meet them in a way that was distinctive and indicative of who they
1: are. But, but also what we're seeing is um, instead of a whole new cast of characters coming into King's Landing, we're seeing Cersei and Marjorie dig in deeper. Yes. Instead of seeing Jon Snow w- range away north of the wall and meet new people and see new things in the world, he's doing paperwork and he's stuck there and there's a sense of obligation and as you said, of, of responsibility and inherited responsibility now that other characters had earlier in the seasons. And I feel like all of that has added up to a much more... i just finding it a much richer experience. Like, this episode, beginning to end, was a pleasure to watch. And I feel like there have been seasons, certainly, that have, on the whole, been pleasurable. There have been episodes in the past where I was like, well, okay, well, that was week five. Yeah, pleasure
0: is the right word for it. I think, you know, one of the things that I I wanted to shout out about this episode, and and there's been a few episodes like that this season, is the the scenes in which, um, it's you know, these two characters are talking, uh, and one of the characters, at least... It has an, a completely ulterior motive that we are only fifty or seventy five percent aware of or understanding. Yep. So, Littlefinger has obviously been coaching up Sansa for this entire like for 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 quite a while, and then basically sold her out to Bruce Bolton. But then at the same time is still got her back. And so the conversation the tombs is shot through that perspective of I don't know if we can really trust this guy to be in, have working in her best interests. And the same goes for Melisandra and Jon Snow, where she's in there trying to seduce him, but. Obviously, she has some sort of pagan ritual that he's going to be a part of. That that's down the line, and his her seduction of him goes beyond um, maybe just being lonely and cold. Although, I mean, well, the, she would be cold because she doesn't seem to be wearing any clothes underneath that robe. That came up
1: <laughs> recently. She doesn't need them. She said because oh, right, because the Lord uh, of Light you know, is
0: inside of her. Right, and, 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 uh, and because.
1: And, and because the Lord of Light is burning inside of her, we know smoke sometimes vents off. You yeah. Know, there's an exhaust issue she has that <laughs> sometimes turns murderous. But um, oh, but, my, but my, know, the, I just the, want to say the,
0: my, my last favorite duo there is Cersei and Jonathan Price, uh the High Sparrow, because I just really enjoy her genuine engagement with him about matters of faith, but clearly using him to X out the Tyrells.
1: Which is interesting um, because... This is a, an example, and I'll talk to Jason about this when we do Watch of Thrones on Wednesday, but when you watch those scenes and you see the way Jonathan Price is playing this character, he's playing him very much as a humble servant of the yeah. Lord. He does not seem to have any th- connection in terms of his performance to... The crazy murder in the streets that's happening now under his watch. Yeah. He does not seem like a dude who would ask people to uh, have dream catchers tattooed into their foreheads, you <laughs> know, and, and run up in brothels and just start hitting dudes. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't seem to be him. And so that's very interesting. And it suggests that either he and Cersei recognize, like, game recognize game. They know they're both playing each other mm-hmm. for their long-term goals. Or...
0: He's acting or like a haven't... babe in the woods about this, like... Oh, I'm just here. I'm a humble servant. Yeah. And she's just oh, like, an, sure you're a
1: humble servant. Yeah. An army for me? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you shouldn't have. Um, I wanted to just I want to talk about Cersei. Circle back to the Jon Snow thing. The other point that's that's worth making and about Jon Snow and Sansa is that one thing we don't know for sure is what they actually want. Now, that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that might be a luxury, actually, in this world, because when you are a noble person or you're tasked with these old institutions, your personal desires aren't really paramount. Yeah, well, when you're a but, bystander to tragedy, it, it's hard to get –
0: it's, it's hard to have right. goals. Yeah,
1: right. And, I, and I wa- Right, and I wonder <laughs> if her goal during that phase was just – I mean, when we first met her, she just was a princess who wanted to marry a romantic prince and, and fall into that fairy tale – Then it seemed like maybe what she wanted more than anything else was to just go back into the past. If that means taking back the North, then that means taking back the North but try to recreate what what was lost. None of that seems to have anything to do with who she is as an individual. I'm not sure if I'm reading too much into it. But similarly with Jon Snow, like, getting revenge seems like a pretty smart play. But at the same time, where would it get him? And maybe he's making the right decision to stay where he is. It's It's telling that those are
0: two characters who never really felt at home at Winterfell either, right?
1: Well, Sansa did. Did she? I thought yeah, she, she always. She I thought she dreamed and,
0: of King's Landing and 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 uh, like
1: princes and faraway I lands. Guess we, I, I guess we mean she wasn't content there. Yeah, I exactly. I, I thought and Jon Snow obviously was an
0: outsider just because of his, the nature of his parent, parentage. You know.
1: Yeah. So let's go back to Cersei. I mean, this is really <laughs> this is an MVP season for yeah. for, for for Lena Head. A lot and, of fan just going on she is really she's really a special person um i loved love love and i just hope someone breaks out the gift machine for this i loved her folgers best part of waking up is your first cup of wine in the morning by the, the window heavy pour, yeah just a heavy pour looking out with a morning light on her face and she's like breathing in deeply you know just the sort of the tannins yeah. she's like this is the best part of the day <laughs> it's the best part of the day the first um, hit you know The first hit of wine before you find out that the army of fundamentalists that you armed is running wild. When the the Chianti hits. Just beautiful. Um, it's, It's interesting to think about her in relationship to all the other Lannisters. Because remember, the thing that her dad did that we talked about constantly and that we really loved about him was that he was just constantly making moves. But he was playing chess. Everyone else was playing checkers. He was behind his desk writing letters guaranteeing that all the ill, ill stuff happened miles away yeah and he kept his name out of the raven's mouth if you think about the red wedding you can think about it in a number of ways one it was just brutal yeah but two it was actually weirdly uh economic economical because it minimized bloodshed it maximized bloodshed in that room you had a war in
0: a dinner at a dinner table instead of on the battlefield
1: exactly right you finished a war at an after party and no one blamed the lannisters for it or overtly what cersei's doing. Is just as diabolical. I mean, it was brilliant short term, but long term, I don't know. I mean, I, I personally don't have any experience with with governments arming, uh, you know, faith based militias. Sure, I would I would know nothing about that. No one would in the 21st century. But it might, <laughs> I'm going to guess that it doesn't tend to work out so well. Rarely, yeah. Uh, these things tend to come roaring back at you. Yeah. So that'll be interesting you did do your doctoral see. thesis on the Knights Templar, so. I did. I did. Um, and it was also an interesting counterpoint because we had that with that radical act, the radicalism going on in King's Landing, and then we had a different kind of radicalism going on across the ocean in Marine. Yeah,
0: that's what I'm going to talk to Mallory about on Watch the Thrones on Wednesday is acts of rebellion and acts of sort of uh, religious fundamentalism or, or, you know, and, and- – Keep-
1: can we talk about acts of like breathable fabric to wear when you're like running around in the alleys? I just feel like you don't need to wear gold masks. Yes, like, like that. I feel like that limits them. That, I was just kind of surprised properly?
0: because I thought that the the uh, the the eunuchs were
1: were undefeated. I thought that those dudes oh. were like UNLV in the '90s. But they are. But that's that's actually why this was so brilliant. Is because you have this army that is you know that is braver than anything will walk onto any battlefield unbowed, who use giant swords to basically just cleave through the opposing army and then you have them in, in then they're set upon by street fighters mm-hmm. like in strange alleys i mean it, it's almost as if there's a metaphor here for a <laughs> vaunted military might being undone by people you know in the streets of a place where they weren't welcomed i don't know i'm just spitballing yeah. here yeah. but it's pretty clear and it's it's actually pretty fascinating you know i i yeah i know generally... i don't
0: it's it, that part it's like the, the the parallels or the the, the echoes of, of real world stuff is always a little complicated with game of thrones but it's pretty fast and i've generally
1: i've generally scoffed at it before but i think that in this case it's especially kind of impossible to ignore it's impossible to ignore and especially if they're just going to be like if the, if the marine stuff is just going to stay dug in which we didn't want from a narrative perspective but it stays there if that's where we're headed for the rest of the season Yeah, this is the walking the dead ultimate, farmhouse yeah for this season. the season but if but but it just in terms of the bigger picture, what it's saying about occupation and imperialism and 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 the cost of freedom yeah, and that's in quotes. I, I I hate using the wire as like oh well that's the sainted benediction of quality TV sure but in terms of a kind of just real world fatalism, that's that's a close comparison yeah. about 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 you know about heroic missions and how they fail and seeing. Seeing Barriston who you know, he's really keeping limber in his old age. You got to he looks good out there. Yeah, he looked good out there. He was he was like a kid out there, taking a few hacks, you know, and then he he <laughs> took a few too many, but. That moment when he appeared in the alley, and you, again, I, I love what the season is doing in terms of playing off of our expectations for classic heroism and classic stories of fantasy, where he shows up like King Arthur or Lancelot, yeah, and you see a knight fight, and you're like, "Oh man, I get it. It's romantic. It's epic." And then he just he just gets got. Yeah, we had there was a couple that, of really good individual performances with swords this week. Performances with swords, yeah. yeah. Uh, Braun just Bron just straight up horse murdering. Yeah, which is which is a bold move. Uh well we the have. Jamie got other... his uh, Indiana Jones thing. I mean, it was a good we didn't even talk about them. It was a great episode.
0: We have a whole other podcast we can talk about those guys with. Um let's uh let's get on to Mad Men cuz we're a little short-handed today. Um no Jamie. Uh we we are going <laughs> yeah. we we are going a little short today. Um so this is the third to last episode of Mad Men. It was called Lost Horizons.
1: Lost Horizons, yeah. The Lost
0: Horizons. Um I I just want to start by saying one one of the things that is both great about being alive right now and sucks about being alive right wow. now is All how right. you get tied to your your digital devices and the internet and feeling like every you know you, everything is just cycling through these tabs and that you're getting bits of information but never like a full enriching experience with with what you're engaging in. And uh, there was something about I, I'm actually not even a fan of the book, really on the road, but there was something about the end of that episode with the Burt cameo the mentioning of of On the Road, the Kerouac quote that Burt says, and then the hippie uh, burnout that he picks up in a cornfield, and they start, you know, and um, David Bowie starts playing.
1: And they start going in the wrong direction.
0: And they start going in the wrong direction. Um, This show really, like, its gift to me was really the fact that it, it made me feel so fully engaged with the world around me, like, in a lot of ways. Like, not that I was incapable of that without this show, but the way that it pulls in... And and this has been written about so much, but the way that it pulls in literature and popular music mm-hmm. and big mythological ideas about America over the last 100, 200 years is just a gift that I don't know if, if there's any po- proper way to, like, sum up. Or I just can't believe, like, the feeling that I have at the end of a satisf- like and they're all satisfactory, at the end of a satisfactory episode of Mad Men is not, like, the way I feel when any other television episode comes to a close.
1: This is a show that – it's such a rich show. It's a rich text to unpack and consider, and it's worthy of all of the examination. Yeah. You know, every show that airs on television is going to get 100 recaps. It's going to get podcasts. We're going to talk about some of them, even if they don't necessarily merit this level of of discourse. Yeah. Mad Men deserves it because it's considered, you know, and and you could you could point to more overt examples in this episode, like Don staring at the a, a table surrounded by faceless, same-looking white guys with the same haircuts and glasses, and, Dan, and cans Don's of coke. looking
0: at the. The plane, yeah, cans yeah. of
1: coke in front of them, and he's looking at the planes go by the Empire State Building. Or you can think about the smaller choices that inform the bigger choices, like the way McCann Erickson was filmed, like this, this this, hideous warren. I mean, it looked like Marine. I mean, we're going to talk yeah. about Game of Thrones. All the, the, it, the, the hallways, yeah. The dark, claustrophobic hallways, the, just the, the, the tumult, the chaos of people. Those and offices of felt like prison cells, Yeah. Every every aspect of that was was chosen, and and you know other people in their recaps and writings about this episode have talked about Lost Horizon being a, the name of a movie that Don watched in the first season, uh, and you know talk of wanting to escape even then and now actually doing it. I am people who listen to this podcast know I am completely completely on board with this final season mm-hmm. of Mad Men. I'm in love with it, and I'm in I'm actually in awe of it right now. Yeah, the
0: gut punch is that it's. Instead of... I, there was a few goodbyes last night. I feel like we've seen... A, there have been a couple of goodbyes, but there are certain pairings that you get the feeling like that's the last time I'm going to see these two people interacting. It yep. could be proven wrong, but obviously, like, Roger and Peggy felt like that was the last time they're going to have a significant moment together. Um, Don and Betty. Don and Betty did seem like one of those weird last moments. Uh, the, the thing that the season is doing that is unlike any final season that I've ever seen, because so many of those seasons are these express trains to a final destination. Yes. This is just, this is going to keep going around in a loop. You know what I mean? And these characters, like, are going to keep going off on these journeys that we are not going to be privy to. And that's actually the saddest part about it.
1: That's, I totally agree with you. I I can't think of a, a final season or a final run of episodes that have been so expressly about finality and ambivalence about finality. And the thing that's so amazing about what is happening right now, about what Weiner's doing is... It's not just that he's denying us happy endings because I think many shows, especially with shows that are, you know, with beloved characters, we want to see them happy. We want to see them end well. We want to know they're in a good place before we put them back in their case and put them on the shelf. Yeah. He's not giving us that. You know, Um, Joan saw this coming in terms of her work and it didn't really – and she saw it coming and she wasn't able to pull a fast one. She wasn't able to win. She wasn't able to make it work. And the show has done enough background that we know – how lucky she feels to have this relationship with Bruce Greenwood's character that seems to be going well. She seems to be happy in that regard, but she won't let him fix this. This can't be fixed. This right. is what she worked for, and it's been taken from her. Uh, similarly, like, Rod, uh, Roger coming in and being like, you should just take this deal. That's not heroic, necessarily. He's not fighting for her, and it's also not—but it's, it's also true. He wouldn't tell her to fight, and nor would Joan, that we've known for this many years— go immediately to the ACLU. She wouldn't that's not the character. Yeah. So instead of a happy ending with the show's denying us, the show's just denying us endings straight up. And that's something I kind of I think I'm gonna write about before the end of the season or at the end of the season. There is this deep sense that everything moves, everything continues, things get disappointing and they get worse. You never know when you're at the high point. Yeah. That's the thing. You, you never know when you're at the top of the roller coaster. And that, that speech that Roger gives to Peggy, I mean, it was such an incredible scene. I mean, he's playing, a, he's playing an organ in the office. And it's so funny and it's so goofy with the roller skating. Yeah. It's also just, it rips you up because he's saying, you know, he had his name on the door and he got attached to the wall. No, and the and uh, whole, never eye, get attached even to the walls. his story
0: about everybody going swimming off the boat, but he didn't want to because it was a two story drop, but he just needed a push. Everybody in this episode got a push uh don was pushed out of betty's kitchen he's pushed out further and further into america chasing some dream that may or may not i mean like the areas that he's driving through are the areas he's in the beer belt he's driving through the area that these it, guys it, it was, are saying these are where these people live they need these
1: it's an abstraction yeah in that and you keep waiting for him
0: to pull the car over and call back to mccann and say i got it here's the miller light uh here's the miller Light
1: slogan let's talk about that that's what we thought maybe he was doing right
0: he's not doing that He's trying to find his that. own I, slogan or whatever it is. He's not working, you know. Like he's not he's not working. Yeah, and 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 that guy and, and being like, a, is he on a bender? And them being like, well, this is what he does. And it's like, yeah, but this isn't. Th- these aren't. This isn't like a a repeat performance of something. He's obviously going in some sort of farther and farther west, I, even if just emotionally.
1: I love how ugly it makes the business they've been in seem. Yeah, you know, there there was a real romance to the show in a lot of ways. Um, you know, and Don was this sort of astronaut or cowboy or whatever american archetype you want to use but there was always the thing underneath all of it which is they're just selling stuff to people yeah and maybe that's all any of us are doing but that you know but they seem to amplify it, whether it was through poetry or friendship or romance or sex or alcohol when they get folded into this hive mind this this just machine of commerce it just feels kind of cheap you know yeah. it just doesn't feel well, that's special. what he finds
0: out when he walks into that office and everybody there is another donald draper that, another one that they've been sold and, 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 and everybody's there to take it up a notch everybody is there to be this special unicorn and that's what was so incredible about ted's sort of smirk that he gives don on the way out of the office where he's just like oh you just made your decision you're you know like you're not me you're, you're not going to be able to sit here with a can of coke and take notes yeah. on a on a presentation
1: yeah but it wasn't even it wasn't the smirk that ted would have had years ago when they were rivals it was like okay he yeah. was fine it was a contented smirk. Yeah. like ted and pete were very happy there And then we contrast it with with Peggy, um, which was an – I mean, that was an incredible scene Uh, with her walking in with the tentacle porn. The tentacle porn coming back of all the callbacks. I mean, (laughs) we didn't want Glenn, but I think we're we're okay (laughs) with the tentacle porn. Um, When she says to Roger that she knows that men don't like women who make them uncomfortable, and he's like, why would you ever think that? Like, what are you even talking about? And she walks in there. yeah, yeah, When she walks in like the the Max Fisher slow-mo from the beginning of Rushmore – it's fascinating because that place is awful and it might beat whatever spark exists in her out of her but you also have the sense because we've been so keyed into her inner life that it's not going to end. Yeah. Like even if we never see her professionally again on this show, her life goes on and she is a tough person. So it was really more about that pivot. It really wasn't about what's going to happen in those walls, but and it was I, a, I'm just, a, I, it was such a tough episode because so many of
0: these characters that we have all probably become so attached to were forced to, I mean, there was something about when Hobart says to, uh, to Don, you're my white whale. It's like, well, Don's Ishmael. Don thinks that he's searching for a white whale. He doesn't want to yes. be somebody's white whale. And these Great. characters were all forced to become the objects in somebody else's story, not not the subjects. And that's, that's, that's the hardest thing that you have to accept in your life, is becoming a, a supporting character.
1: That's so He, he ultimately was the product. Yeah. He, the, he, they were bought and sold. And now, you know, he's hobart's completing his collection and that's all he was that's all he ever was all the work that he did you know we we saw there there was a lot of foreshadowing of that idea with the we talked about this the other week like in don's office the the um advertising awards from like the late 50s yeah lane dead lane prices mets pennant on the wall um things just get hung up and forgotten uh and, and, Speaking you know, of the Mets, just,
0: I like how that guy who was working for Peggy put Ed. on his Mets hat and walked right into 2015, <laughs> like with his no. like his like Burberry bag yeah. and his like
1: yeah his Mets. He went hat. off to go get a get a cup of single origin coffee, yeah, over exactly. in, the, in Greenpoint. That was amazing. He totally did. He Just walked off set <laughs> straight to Intelligenza. Um It's just incredibly moving to see this show fall apart in the same way a tv show falls apart yeah in a lot of his interviews and he's done a lot of interviews weiner talked about the thing that was momentous to him wasn't writing the final season because he was still in his glory he was still running his room he still had the network on beck and call there were still pages to be delivered and actors buzzing around but when it was done then they did the next work which was kind of normal post-production and then the set got shut down and then people started to get other jobs and then in the end he was just alone in his office with his secretary and then it was time to let the secretary go yeah and it gets dismantled and whatever you did however great it was it's in the rearview mirror sure and nothing nothing can make unless it unless you're somebody forever. like Don who's continually just That's on right. this perpetual
0: forward and, motion
1: yeah and 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 the the way that we like to have our tv shows and especially our most beloved ones is we like to put them in amber and remember them forever i mean the, the end of cheers was kind of perfect because the lights never Well, the lights did go off in the last second, right? But the bar was open. The bar was open. Nobody died in our minds that they're still showing up to have more drinks tomorrow. And that's not – Mad Men is refusing to do that. And I think that all of us, and this is us included, we kind of didn't think that the show would end in a way that was traditional. But we also didn't think it would end in a way that was either satisfying or maybe – Extraordinary. I mean, let's use that word. Yeah, this is extraordinary. Yeah. whether it's satisfying or not is not up to us. But I think it's it's unlike anything else.
0: Absolutely. Uh, do you want to quickly talk about the Star Wars director shakeup before we go?
1: Yeah, I did. I also did want to say I wanted to say this during Game of Thrones. The way Game of Thrones has ruined me because I watched the movie that I know you've seen called Force Majeure. It's actually I highly recommend it to anybody listening. This, it's on Netflix, so and there, people should and, check this and out. And weirdly
0: enough, Julia Louis Dreyfus has the rights to the English language remake of it.
1: Oh that would be a good fit. I mean it's sort of this it's a it's a very 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 dry I don't even call a it satire. It's basically a horror movie about
0: Grown-ups where nothing. Yeah. H- marriage and life
1: <laughs> and being an adult. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing horrific happens, but it's the kind of movie that it reminds me of the way you talked about Mad Men two years ago, where you're like every scene they're in a car, you think the car is going to crash. Yeah, right. But you know the show isn't that show. But it's you're just waiting for like the like
0: avalanche it. the entire time. So what was? What was? So your- I was
1: just watching it and I was like, oh, it's so, oh, it's so painful. Oh, the way these adults are talking to each other. Oh, and they're ignoring their kids. Oh, it's <laughs> terrible. And then. Corman giant's bane from north of the wall breezes (laughs) into this frame. And I have to tell you, Game of Thrones damage that I am, I was like, thank God. I hope he brought his club. I hope he brought brought... a giant. Yeah. I hope he brought cannibals. Did you like the movie? I found it extremely painful to watch, which isn't necessarily good or bad. I think it was expertly made. And I think it was maybe a little too pleased with how clever it was, but it's, it's an, it's, I, I do recommend watching it. I think it's an exceptional movie. I just haven't decided if I liked it or not. Okay, but so I wanted we'll... I, I, I wanted dude to come in and just start beating people <laughs> to make me more comfortable and give us that result that it was never going to give us. Okay, finally, we wanted to buzz through this. Um, big news in the trades, right? On yeah. Friday, they dropped it. Dropped a Friday bomb. People don't want news going out. So uh, Josh Trank is now long, no longer directing uh, one of the Star Wars spin off movies. And this has been rumored for a while because this is the kid who is only 30 years old. He directed Chronicle, which which you were a big fan of. Uh, Off of Chronicle, he got Fantastic Four reboot, which has been, what's the word, troubled? Uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought, I I kind of had been holding out hope that they just weren't playing the game where they were going to inundate us with, like, special clips and and previews 12 months before the movie came out. But it sounds like there were reshoots, at least, uh, even as recently as April. Like,
1: Two weeks ago. Yeah,
0: and that those reshoots... Resho- I've read rumors that those reshoots were being handled by Matthew Vaughn, um, but they were at least overseen by Simon Kinberg, who wrote The Fantastic Four and, and is also a it. major part of the creative team behind these new Star Wars films, and uh, Trank was supposed to show up to a Star Wars celebration a couple weeks ago. We should mention that Star Wars is made by Disney, who also owns Grantland, but Star Wars was... Um, there was some sort of Star Wars celebration a couple weeks ago. Trank was supposed to show up. Gareth Edwards did show up, and they talked about Rogue One... And, and- and, and Trank had a cold, Ch- they said he was... Josh Trank has a cold, yeah, uh, the flu. And then yesterday or Friday it was announced that Trank was off off the project.
1: These are the stories that I want... To know everything about. Yes. I want to know everything about this. And a Hollywood Reporter ran a story that was very lightly sourced. Sort of went around, beat around the bush, and it said that you know they had Lucasfilm had concerns about his behavior while filming Fantastic Four. There was some. There's a great thing in there about how he had dogs and like left them in an apartment in New Orleans, and they did like a hundred thousand dollars worth of damage. Like
0: dire wolves? Like what kind of dogs do hundred thousand dollars worth of damage? <laughs>
1: I don't think you could do $100,000 worth of damage in my apartment with where a blowtorch. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't have that much value around it. So where was he staying? Oh, no. I'm picturing I'm picturing like that was that Queen of Versailles movie like Calvin like Candy's house. house
0: from Django Unchained. He's just like burning Exactly.
1: So it's fascinating, but this is something that I feel like it it it's, it runs through a lot of the conversations we've had and basically the trend right now in Hollywood, obviously everything is is franchise management mm-hmm. and franchise expansion and everything is franchise related. They basically the career path for a young filmmaker is to get known, get a little heat off of something small, and then immediately jump not just the big leagues, but to bat and clean up for the Yankees. Yeah. So we we talk about like Colin Trevorrow directed a, a pretty minor indie film called Safety Not Guaranteed. He gets Jurassic World, he just jumped to the front. And of the was line, also and up then, for
0: a Star Wars film.
1: That's right. And Trank, you know, did a similar thing um, coming off of Chronicle, and even. Uh, it was his name. Alex Ross Perry made this small movie called uh, Listen Up, Philip mm-hmm. that I kind of enjoyed. Elizabeth Moss is really good in it. It's like if you, if you think Wes Anderson is too big budget, you yeah. know what I mean, just like too broad, like then you'll love Listen Up, Philip. That dude just got handed the right to make a live-action Winnie the Pooh movie, which I guess fits, but who knows? Like that's where you go next. Sure. And what's interesting is that it seems clear that to have a viable career in Hollywood now – you have to not just have the artistic vision or a tiny bit of artistic vision. You have to be able to manage, like, in a giant corporate yeah. Yeah. structure. That's not that different than it's ever been because a director is just as much, like, ego massager and, and budget minder. I mean, that's generally part of the gig and always has been. Yes. But it reminds me a lot of TV where we've elevated the role of showrunner to such, to such you know, mythic proportions where to be a showrunner, you have to be inspired and brilliant, but you also have to be the face of the show. You have to be good with press. You have to massage press. You have to you have to work with the cast. You have to do everything. And I feel like those two skill sets are generally very disparate. Yeah. Like, I'm not here to bury Josh Trank. I'm here actually to say maybe he's just, like, really good at making movies, and that's the only part he should be in charge of. And it's, it's sort of worrisome the way they're dumping these billion-dollar – weights on people's shoulders like it's very few people I do agree
0: both. with that except I would put in the caveat that that is a rather otorist reading of filmmaking which okay. I, 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 I agree with but to say that Trank is really good at making movies but say he's a terrible manager of people or whatever is actually means he's only 50% good at making movies good at so making he might movies, be a really so great right. visual stylist but anybody from Stanley Kubrick to Richard Linklater also has to manage the people yes. that they're that, on their set yeah. and if that dude for whatever reason, led to Fox and or you know Fox losing millions of dollars to have to reshoot these movies and keep calling very busy actors back from various sets around yeah. the world to reshoot parts of a movie that is coming out soon. Then that's 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 not somebody you're going to give Star yeah, Wars to. I,
1: I mean, let's remember, even if I'm coming from a purely a tourist point of view, like Michael Cimino, like there's a reason why he didn't. Everyone thought yeah. he was a genius, but no one let him work anymore because he couldn't make movies happen Yeah, they're not giving the Star
0: Wars to Terrence Malick either.
1: You know what I mean? No, like, and nor should they. I mean, I would probably – I guess this goes back to the larger argument that I would rather see whatever these people did next rather than what they're going to do for the larger company. But you know, I, I, I'm thinking about it in terms of TV because that's generally what I do, and it's just sort of – it's an interesting moment. And we talked about how Mad Men was rich with all these details and this idiosyncratic vision and just artistic consideration. Sure. And fewer and fewer shows – have that fewer and fewer shows are considered in that way, whether it 's from a creative perspective or from what the network wants or whether they 're given the time to do it and We are really seeing that in terms of the diminishment of that in terms of the era that we 're in and we went from talking about blockbusters and movies but i 'm thinking about TV like I recently read a, a script written by someone who is a very good TV writer with a lot of i 'm not going to name names but you know credits on on network procedurals ran a show on one of the networks that we cover shows that we'd like to talk about so one of the good cable networks a really good show and wrote the script from his heart and it's great it's a western it's awesome it's funny it's surprising it's violent it's dirty it's just like oh i want to go in this world because it was a world that was thought of by someone no one will even consider making it it's like it's not even a conversation it's like well that's a it's a cute sample but here's what we want we want something that will fit into this box yeah and we've lost that in movies, and we're we're. Abs- I, this is just I'm bringing it up because it's the first evidence I've seen, just having read something, that we are losing it on TV. That this moment where we thought that like the Netflixes and Amazons would empower these sorts of scripts, and they're kind of not. It's kind of not happening. You kind of have to shoulder that franchisey burden, whether the franchise is Star Wars or Fargo or True Detective. You know this. – No, I, I understand what you're but you saying. You see what I'm saying. I
0: see what you're saying. It's it's interesting. It's just interesting point. I I definitely feel like there is a degree to which it feels like 75% of popular culture is in some ways a a reboot or a remake or part of another piece of intellectual property. But I just, that's actually not so much different than it was in the forties and the fifties where they just bought every dime store, paperback crime novel and Western and turned it into a movie in the next, you know, six weeks later. Um, But yeah, I wonder what will happen with Trank next. There's, Plenty of stories of guys who made one or two big movies and then couldn't couldn't swing it, you know what I mean, and couldn't handle it anymore. And and uh, we kind of just assume that everybody's got it together and that if they're not getting to make movies, it's because of some unfair Hollywood yes, studio right. behavior. But it could just be that they were, nobody was like, yeah, let's give this guy $200 million to play with.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know,
0: I, and that might be better for I- his career. Maybe he can go off and make two or three movies that are like, unique and interesting like chronicle war was
1: yep and hopefully he can just get both himself and his career back on track yep. because that is not a good way to have your name get in the them papers. dogs man <laughs> go go tend to your dogs first i think i think that actually is a better point to end on because if you're leaving your animals unattended that's kind of that's pretty transparent yeah <laughs> that's kind of a cry for help yeah like but for real like if you brought two dire wolves into the studio out there in la <laughs> Like there's some stuff on the wall. Like Bill has some. These like, are some flare. expensive
0: posters. But I don't know if we'd get to 100k. That's
1: just that's just unimaginable. Like, yeah. what, like what dog can dogs bite metal? Like, can <laughs> they really know. bite through steel? <laughs> did they eat money? Like did, they, did he have a hundred thousand dollars in cash in a duffel in a bag and a dog labeled, ate it? <laughs> it just said kibble. Yeah, and the dogs could read, and they just went into it.
0: Oh man, um, I'd love to see a movie pr- about dogs that can read.
1: And eat money. Yeah. Like, That's your next movie, Trank. <laughs> I want to see this stuff. We should probably mention that we will be delving right back into Game of Thrones on our weekly Game of Thrones podcast, Watch the Thrones. That's on We've Wednesday? That yeah. On Wednesdays, you can subscribe to Hollywood Perspectives podcast on iTunes. Mm-hmm. You can listen to it on YouTube. I don't know. Are we on SoundCloud or is it just Watch I the Thrones? I think you can. I mean, Joe
0: put some stuff on SoundCloud. But it's like, go look for some chill wave mixes and then maybe you'll happen to us.
1: Put me on oh. SoundCloud, Joe. All right, man. I'll see you next week. Great job, Baranski. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes, or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.